0: We're in uh, our study of the book of Genesis, and uh, we'll see, but Lord willing, we'll get through chapter 9 today and into 10 and 11. Um, Just a real, real quick review. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, therefore the first 11 chapters of the Bible, are, at least in my judgment, uh, the most foundational chapters for understanding the rest of the Bible. In many ways, if you don't have a good handle on what is going on there, you don't understand a lot of what God is doing in the rest of the scriptures. So that I've said a number of times, so that's just review. And we have the accounts of God's creation, of the physical world, creation of institution, institution of marriage, and then the entrance of rebellion into that creation. And then we see how bad that creation really is. Uh, or hat becomes, I guess a better way to put it, in chapter 4 and 5 with the, the killing of, uh, of uh, Abel by Cain and then the decline of things and kind of Lamech, one of Cain's descendants, uh, just violates every institution that God creates. And then that deterioration continues where God then must recreate. He sends the flood and in, in effect ends all life on the planet with the exception of those on the ark and now we're at the point where they have exited from the ark the recreation theme and this is more of a big picture idea but the recreation theme is throughout the scriptures and you and i are part of that recreation we are new creations in christ and then that final new creation, if you will, is the new heaven and new earth, which is how the Bible ends. Just, they're one of those this is one of those scenes that ties the scriptures together. It really is. But let's pick up now with uh, chapter nine, and the, uh, <coughs> Noah and his family and all the animals and so on, have exited the ark. Um, they are repopulating the earth, and we see Noah, the new Adam if you will, because it tells us in verse 20 of chapter 9 that he is a man of the soil. That's an important phrase, only in the sense that it reminds us that as Adam was a creative cultivator with God, so is Noah. He is a man of the soil. And he drank of the wine, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine, and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent." Now, several comments. Obviously, there is a significant time gap between what happens in verse 18 and what happens in verse 21. Because the exit from the ark, they've got to presumably clean things up, plant. I mean, obviously, you know, that. I just want you to make sure this isn't the day after the exit from the ark. This happens. We're not sure how long it is, actually, in terms of numbers of days, weeks, months, years, or whatever. But, okay, he is now enjoying the fruit of what he has produced. Wine in the Bible is a symbol of God's blessing. Now, I know since prohibition in the United States, that is not how evangelical Christians often look at it. But at the same time, its abuse, at the same time, its abuse produces drunkenness and nakedness. And therefore, it can be the channel to moral slavery. Now, I'm saying all that because this is the dichotomy that you always see in God's world when there's rebellion and sin. That which is a blessing of God can quickly be turned into a channel which leads to moral slavery. Uh, Food drink, sexuality, all of those things are created by God as blessing, but they can be abused and become channels that lead to moral slavery. And that is what happens here. Noah takes something that God blesses as evidence of blessing and turns it into drunkenness and nakedness. Now, this is the final time in these chapters 1 through 11 where the term nakedness is used. And you see that in verse 22. And I want to get to that in a minute. But that, is a, that, is a, uh, that becomes a very central... Now, listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. That becomes a very central element in what will become Canaanite debauchery, Canaanite sin, Canaanite idolatry. Let me give you one example, because we're starting to transition to the focus on the Canaanites. Canaan is the son of Ham. He, that is Canaan, will experience the curse of God. We'll go through all that in a minute. But the Canaanites, of course, are the central issue here as we're moving into Noah populating the earth and so on and the Canaanites. Who are they? They are the people who will populate the promised land. And in Leviticus chapter 18, 23 times the word nakedness is used in association with the Canaanites. Which is a result of their animistic, polytheistic, fertility-focused, sexually immoral, debauched Civilization. So now again, listen carefully to this sentence. The Canaanites are going to epitomize the human rebellion against God. Because as the Canaanites go, is the way all civilization will go into idolatry, gross sexual immorality, debauchery, decline. It doesn't mean they're not sophisticated. Some of the some of the cities, city states of the Canaanite civilization, were remarkable cities. Jericho comes to mind. Hatzor, the great, uh, the great, the largest Canaanite city in in the Promised Land, was Hatzor, and, and, jo, jo, and Joshua conquered that. These were not backward cities. These were highly civilized, highly prosperous, very well organized. But they were debauched, idolatrous, grossly immoral, and God will judge them. And the instrument of his judgment will be the Israelites. So I'm saying all that, and I hope I didn't lose you with this. But what the text is doing here is it's helping us to see that this kind of debauched living is going to be epitomized by the Canaanites. And the Israelites are going to be very interested. Where did the Canaanites come from? Who are they? They are the enemies we will have to conquer to claim the promised land of God. The promised land that God said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You with me there, or did I lose you? In other words, don't dismiss quickly what's happening here from the rest of the scriptures. This is a very, very important point, because this is the way human rebellion is. They take something that is good from God and make it into an instrument of evil. Does that make sense? And it came from the lineage of Cain. Yes. Yeah, well, good. now don't forget, the Cainite civilization, not Canaanite, Cainite yeah. okay. has been destroyed. Okay. The flood destroyed that. Okay. This is Ham, Shem, and Daph with their descendants, and it's the Canaanite, which is the son of Ham, mm-hmm. that is going to epitomize this debauchery of where where things are going.
1: Canaan is the grandson's name. Now, are Correct. Going, are you going uh,
0: to Yes, I'm only in verse 20, Then 21. All right. we are Leviticus? Leviticus 18.
1: Was this the first time that nakedness
0: was mentioned? No, 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 no. It was mentioned, uh, well, it's mentioned first of all in in chapter 2, verse 25, and they were naked, not ashamed. But then it is used in Genesis three when they sin and they are naked and ashamed. <clears throat> nakedness, nakedness is positive in Genesis two twenty five. It's negative for the rest of the Bible, because the the naked when when they're when naked and not ashamed, it means they are so totally other centered. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no corruption. They're totally open, totally transparent, totally in fellowship with God and with one another. But sin, they realize their nakedness; they're now vulnerable. Their guilt and their corruption becomes overwhelming, so they clothe themselves. And so here you have Noah taking, which again is a positive wine in the Bible is a sign of God's blessing. If you want some passages, I can give those to you. But here, when it's abused, as he clearly did, it becomes it becomes a vehicle for drunkenness nakedness and it's the beginning of moral slavery and so noah it's amazing and it show what does this show us just because god recreated and started over again the problem's still there the problem of human rebellion is still there
1: so so was god wasting his effort with the flood
0: well, it would be very hard for me to ever utter a sentence where God is the subject and waste is the verb. I mean, I just—I don't think that fits God's character.
1: Sure, I would assume that, but it begs the question.
0: Well, I never either presume to know everything God is doing uh, with, with things. But don't you think, Rob, among other things, God is just demonstrating again it isn't your surroundings that's the problem. It's you. Noah is in a recreated earth. You follow me? He, You know, everything that was a part of Canite civilization is gone. And so here you have Noah, who was, we read this early, he's a righteous man, he walked with God, and so on. And he does something I mean, I'm assuming in a celebratory way, um, enjoying the bounty of what he has produced uh, after the the flood is over and all that, but takes it too far. Because drunkenness, wine is is a blessing, but drunkenness is a curse. That's how the Bible puts it. So he takes something that is good and prostitutes it into a vehicle for evil. That's, by the word, that verb prostitute, that's where that comes from. You're taking something that's good, sexuality and intimacy between a husband and wife, and making it into something evil, where you just buy it. That's what prostitution is, taking something that's good and making it into an evil.
1: Jim, you said that, um, that in the second part of the nakedness, that, um, that it, they were aware of their sin. And so Brilliant. let's say that we have people today that are engaged in sexual immorality and we dramatize that as being, you know, up here as far as sin and other sins or lesser sin. They're all sins. But why would someone who was engaged in sin then be aware of their nakedness when in fact uh, in today's modern society people run around and, and engage in all kinds of sexual impurity, and and they're naked. Why? I mean, if they want to engage in sin, why are they suddenly aware of the sin nature? What does God do in the heart of man that that makes him aware of it? If in fact they want to disobey God, in in essence, or have
0: disobeyed. I I heard all your words. I'm not sure I completely have your question, but. Uh... So let me try to answer it, and if I'm not answering it, rephrase it. But the, um, the, down, the downward spiral that sin brings in a human life and in, a hu- in human civilization um, starts by, instead of responding and affirming and dealing with the guilt that conscience brings, you're not a believer... But God puts in your heart, Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and following, God puts in your heart, if you want to put it that way, conscience, that innate sense of right and wrong. So the first response, the first response to defying God's moral law is guilt. You feel a bit of shame. Any 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 child, and I'm not going to pick an age because it depends on, on what you're talking about, any child... Who, who, who defies what mom and dad want, or who does something that just instinctively and intuitively, because God puts it there, they know it's wrong. What do they feel? They feel guilt. And they feel shame. I shouldn't lie. There, the Bible says there's an intuitive, innate sense that that's wrong, plus mommy and daddy tell me not to lie. So you lie the first time, and you feel guilt. You feel, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You feel ashamed. But nobody finds out. Mommy and daddy didn't know you did it. You're not necessarily thinking that God's watching, so you do it again. Don't quite feel as much guilt and shame. Do it again. Don't feel any guilt and shame. The Bible calls that hardening of the human heart. So that you can then begin to rationalize and defy all of God's moral law and feel no guilt, no shame. I believe one of the things, and the Bible speaks of it this way, of, of the Holy Spirit's work, it does that in the Thessalonian letters, that one of the things the Holy Spirit begins to do is, now I'm going to use my words, not necessarily biblical words, but he begins to resensitize your conscience where you feel guilt, where you feel shame. But not only that, you begin to see the consequences of what you're doing. You know, if a man commits premeditated murder and goes to jail for life or is on death row, he's living with the consequences of what he's chosen to do. That's why so many men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ in prison. I was in prison work for quite a few years, both in Pennsylvania and then here with Bob Potter at the Douglas County Prison. And that is a fabulous place. If you're willing to do it and willing to go through all that needs to go through, ministering to prisoners is is very, very rewarding because their lives are shaken, broken, They're broken people, and they're vulnerable, and they're open to things that can bring life change. And that's what, you you probably know this, but that's what Jesus is into, life change, you know. And so, I mean, these guys, and the the guys we were working with in Bob's life learning dorm, their recidivism rate dropped precipitously from something like 75, 80% down to the teens. Now, what did that, social work? No, their lives were changed by Christ. So I'm, I'm answering your question in a long, yeah, but that to I, me I, I, is what I yeah, think. I like that, because I, I got the insight. Because it is, so, it is so clear, it is so clear what happens to people. Their hearts just get harder and harder and harder, and there's just no guilt, no shame to whatever they do. And that's where our culture is, not only in the sexuality issue, but in the lack of ethical standards, you know, and I, th- that we even hold people up as presidential candidates who defy everything that God stands for. And we hold them up in both parties.
1: That
0: was your point
1: last, last week. Right?
0: Yeah, the I mean... Years, the time it is now, the Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's unprecedented that we look at leaders at nation, nationally, and I don't mean all of us necessarily, but we look at leaders and we don't particularly care what their lifestyle is like, what their personal ethics are, what their what their marital life is like, what their fidelity to the, doesn't matter anymore. All we're interested is can they get the job done? Incredibly pragmatic way of looking at things. And that's, history doesn't look very kindly on choosing leaders as just pragmatists. not that's not a, that's not a good way to choose people. But we're getting beyond the class. Verse 22. Okay, here's, again, I don't believe there's anything sexual going on here. But it is the moral failure of Adam in taking something, excuse me, of Noah, in taking something that is a blessing from God and turning it into something that is an avenue to moral slavery. He's absolutely drunk. And Ham, the father of Canaan, and notice how he's identified. Because when we're introduced to Ham and Shapheth, it Japheth, it doesn't tell them who aren't his, their immediate sons are. This is the father of Canaan. He saw the nakedness of his father. whom he is to honor and to respect. His father is vulnerable. His father is unprotected. His father has exposed himself in his drunkenness. His father has debauched himself because of the choices he made, taking something that was good from the ground that God has produced and turned it into something where he is out of control of himself. And so Ham, instead of trying to protect his father, does just the opposite. He goes and tells his two brothers outside. The language, instead of protecting the dignity and vulnerability of his dad, he makes a mockery of his dad. He makes... He's a voyeur. He's an exhibitionist. Come see Dad. He's drunk and he's naked. Ha, ha, ha. And remember, these are not little boys. These are not six years old. These are men with families and children. These are adults. These are probably men in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Because remember how old Noah is. And so he's mocking his father instead of protecting him. Instead of dignifying him, he's a voyeur, and he wants everybody to come in and see and mock and make fun of that. So the contrast between Ham and Shem and Japheth is really, it's, it's the antithesis. They're exact opposite. Look at what they do in verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Deliberate, intentional methodology to protect the dignity and the honor of their father, who was in a debauched state no longer in control of himself, lying on a bed, drunk and utterly naked, exposed, unprotected, vulnerable. And I say all that because this is how we should look at this. There's nothing sexual going on here. This isn't about sexuality specifically. <coughs> this is about nakedness, which results from the debauched, out of control, rebellious human choices taking something that's good and prostituting into something that's evil. We quickly are reminded there's a real problem with the human race. There's a real problem here. Now, I've preached the best I can through this. This was a little <clears throat> preaching here, but are there any questions? you you, fo- you follow?
1: First of all, why wine had been around before the flood because there was drinking and you, you wonder why Noah drank to the extent that he did and the other thing I'm wondering is why is Ham not punished instead of Canaan so maybe we'll
0: get to that well okay the first the first part of your, your, your question or comment I, I would agree I mean um, there's the, the, the evidence there was wine and so on I can't answer specifically why no, would have chosen, but as I mentioned a moment ago, I, I would think he's celebrating the harvest. You know, it's a celebratory, exciting, joyful time. You know, the first harvest, I'm assuming that's what we should infer. After the flood, so it's a good time. But again, one more time, humanity's tendency is to take something that's good <coughs> and let it get out of control and become a channel for evil. And every, every, listen, Augustine, the great theologian of the 400s, defined sin as the prostitution of that which is good. Take that which is good and make it into evil. That's what, That's what pornography is. That's what prostitution is. That's what adultery is. That's what bestiality is. That's what polygamy is. That's what big, bigamy is. It's taking something that God has done, created, assigned to be good, and prostituting it into something that's evil. Drunkenness is taking something that's good and making it a channel of evil. That's why some people conclude the best, the best, the best avenue there is just total abstinence. That doesn't necessarily have to be the only one, but some people say that. I don't want to get into that debate. But how you deal with these things, how do you prevent? Knowing who we are, knowing our tendencies as human beings, do we never celebrate? Do we never joyously embrace the things that God declares to be good? And if we do, that's why the ninth fruit of the Spirit is just all over the Scripture, self-control, 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 self-control. And it is a fruit that the Spirit produces. So it's a supernatural fruit. We need the Spirit power and enablement to be able to exercise that. So that we're never out of control. The Bible understands we're emotional beings. You will be angry. But do not let that anger control you. Do not let the sin go down on your your anger. Remember, that's how Paul, the sun goes down on your anger. In Ephesians 4. So I mean all of these things get back to that fundamental point. This is what's happening here. We see the problem is in our surroundings. The problem is inside. And see that's, that's the fallacy of just saying all we need to do is just, Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in this, is just feed people, give them a nice place to live, give them clothing, everything will be alright. No. It's not we don't do those things. we do help people in need, but that's not all we do. We also help them to see. you also need Christ, because He's going to solve your real problem. All right, why God did not direct the curse against him is not stated specifically. Most expositors believe that in Ham's actions in terms of his father, you see the genesis of what will be the Canaanite problem. So God now focuses on Canaan. Did I answer the question in a way that makes sense? Because that I think is the best, the only way I can make sense out of it. All right. Verse 24, when Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. How do we know that? Um, no, no. Either the boys told him or Ham told him. We don't know, but he knew it. So you have now in verse 25 and in 26 and 27, Noah, in effect, both curses and blesses his three boys. As I said in response to John's question, his focus is on Canaan, the son of Ham, because in Ham's actions, he sees the genesis of the Canaanite. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. And, um, and by the way, in the American South, before the Civil War, they said the a- African-American... Um, race bears the curse of Ham. That shows they never studied the Bible because it is not the curse of Ham. And and the curse of Canaan has absolutely nothing to do with racial slavery. What it's saying is that Canaan's descendants will serve his brothers. That's exactly what happened because the descendants of Shem who become Eber, who become Abraham, who become the Israelites, will make the Canaanites serve them. Blessed be the Lord, and notice please, that Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So that explains why God's curse on Canaan is fulfilled in the relationship between Shem and Canaan. Because the descendants of Shem will be the covenant people of God, will be the Israelites. And that is why it's please note that blessed be Yahweh, the Elohim of Shem. In other words, that those covenant making, covenant keeping terms, it will be the descendants of Shem. Now listen, you also know this, because from Shem ultimately is going to come Jesus. Because Shem, Shem and all his descendants become the covenant line. And that, by the way, where we get Semitic or anti-Semitic. And by the way, the Semitic peoples are the Arabs and all of those others. <laughs> They're all Shemites. But that's not the point right now. And then 27, may God enlarge Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Shem, japheth will expand north and east you if you are I have to be careful if you're, if your descendants come from Europe I know some of your descendants don't come from Europe, but if your descendants come from Europe, you're ultimately descendants of japheth aren't you glad you know that yeah. <laughs> And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. <clears throat> All right. We are now done with the flood. Do you want to be done with the flood? Is there anything you want to ask about the flood? Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. That's four chapters. And, and nine is, you know, they, they come off the ark, but it's still in that context of the, the flood narrative. Okay.
1: There's a school of thought that says there are three creations, and I can see the first two—the original creation of Genesis and the recreation following the flood. Do you know of a third theory? That there's a third one.
0: Well, that would be at the end. I, I don't know whom you're referring to there, but a uh, the third—the third would be the new creation of the new heaven, new earth. Second Peter three: God's gonna. Destroy the old and recreate the new and new heaven new earth. Earlier, um, earlier you spoke of the months that they had in chapter 5 and 6, the months. And was there 12 months to a year back then? Absolutely. <coughs> absolutely. Mm-hmm. Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, it explains to us when God creates the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything. He, makes, he says, this will be the, I'm paraphrasing it, but this will be the basis for your time. So I mean, throughout throughout human history, now not not necessarily exactly the way you and I um, um, look at the, the months and the, the days of the month and so on, but time on planet Earth is constructed around the revolution of the Earth around the Sun and the rotation of Earth on its axis around the Moon, so to speak or the moon moving around however you want to talk about that but the point is it's the movement of the heavenly bodies that creates time god and that's why it is absolutely proper to say god created time and so you th- throughout throughout human history you have basically 12 months of varying it depends on the number of days but uh, and so, uh, some civilizations are very close to the way because our way of formulating time around 12 months of varying days in each month, are really rooted in what Julius Caesar did, what his nephew Caesar Augustus did, and what Pope Gregory did. Our basic framework of 365 and 24.25 days, because every four years you add another day in February. And you might probably ask yourself, why is February 28 days? Because Caesar Augustus, the nephew of Julius Caesar, July is That's named. What I was gonna ask. July is named after Julius Caesar and had 31 days. And August, which is named after Caesar Augustus, only had 30 days. And so Caesar Augustus said, "There's no way my <laughs> uncle is going to have more days in a month." So he stole. He literally stole a day from February and put it in August. <laughs> uh, I'm serious. That's exactly and, how he did it. Yeah, I mean, that's just, I mean, because the basic calendar, the names of our months July, August, September, they're all from the Greco-Roman world. And then uh, uh, the Pope, during the medieval period, Pope Gregory, is the one who tweaked it a little bit. I mean, he didn't personally do it, but from his advisors. And uh, the basic calendar we follow today is a product of Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, his nephew, and Pope Gregory. You didn't expect me to go into that detail, did you? I'm sorry, I shouldn't have maybe done that before. Chat, uh, no. Um
1: I've missed unfortunately I've missed a
0: Well, that's your fault. It's not mine. No, I am just kidding. Ed, I'm just kidding. Please.
1: When you talk about nine hundred and fifty years, somebody living here people say, Well, that can't you that's their years are different. So uh, and you made me talk about this already, but how the human body last that long? I don't know if God you know, intervened, but was that literally
0: 950 years? Well, in and, and answer to his question about time, there's nothing that would cause us to think of any other way than that 950 years. 950, 12 months, 365 blocks of time. Generally speaking, Ed, it is usually assumed, and I, I just don't know how any other way to look at this, that... The, the the planet was substantially different before the flood than it was after the flood, because you will start to notice that lifespan after the flood is going to be incredibly shorter. Abraham uh, he's still going to live to be 175 years old, but that's a lot of that's a big difference from 950 years. So and, and so again. It seems reasonable to infer that the climate and every aspect of planet Earth was different before the flood than it was after the flood. And that change began to affect the longevity of life. There are a a number of books that try to speculate on it. Some of it is speculation, but I think some of it is based on reasonable speculation. Because we talked, I don't know if you were here, the source of the water for the flood was twofold. Water vapor above, and the Earth cracked open. The entire topography of Earth is totally different after the flood. And if the atmosphere is changed by the the, uh, the collapse of the water vapor, that means ultraviolet rays are going to come in now in a much greater degree. I'm just what we know about science today. If the change is that, then that's going to be affecting. That's going to affect life. That's going to affect longevity of life. And so that seems a reasonable explanation of why there is greater longevity before the flood than there is after the flood. So as Farskamp said 21 years ago, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Daryl. Yeah, in Romans,
1: Romans, Genesis 9, it seems like there's a connection, or is there a connection between what we see in verses 3 and 4 and what we saw in the beginning part where... God gave Noah, God gave Adam and Eve the <coughs> whole place that they were at, which is called, help
0: me out. The Garden of Eden? Garden of Eden, here. No, it's okay. I, I follow all you. Right. All right. And then, but he gave them a condition But they are not to eat. Right. Of the tree of life. Right. Verse 3
1: says, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I shall give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only, now here's the condition. Only you shall not
0: eat flesh with its life that is its blood. Right. Can you comment on that? Well, you're right. There, There is a, uh, in terms of uh, the source of food, that's the only prohibition God gives. You you now can eat meat. Presumably before the flood, they were vegetarian. That seems reasonable. But after that, you now can eat meat. You can, you're car, car, carnivorous in your diet, but don't eat the blood of the animal. Don't eat that which is the source of life. And that does seem to point, we'll see that real, well, we won't do it in Genesis because it isn't there, but that becomes very clear in the, in the, uh, in the law that God gives to Israel that it, uh, the blood is the life. You don't eat the source of life. And blood becomes a symbol, a powerful symbol of atonement, of, uh, of, of, of forgiveness, and ultimately, of course, leading to the shed blood of Christ and the cross and so on. So there seems to be a connection there. God doesn't want, God just says, don't do that. I do not want you to eat that as a source. And that is one of the reasons why you see in so many pagan religions the actual eating, drinking of blood, which is a prohibition. God doesn't want us to do that. <laughs> All right, look at chapter 10 and 11. Chapters 10 and 11 go together. But we are not going to read all of chapter 10. This is sometimes called the table of nations. And in your notes, that's uh, what I called at the bottom of page 11, Noah's sons populated the earth. And it divides, it meaning this chapter, divides the spreading of the sons into the three parts. Verse 6 is the sons of Ham. Verse 21 is the sons of Shem. And then... Um, I'm I'm sorry. I, I skipped Japheth. I was thinking, where's Japheth? Verse two is the sons of Japheth. Verse six and following are the sons of Ham, and verse twenty one and following are the sons of, of Shem. The descent, I should say, descendants. And all it does is it just helps us to understand where they go and what they populate. So what I'm going to do is refer you to page 12 and page 13 of your packet of notes. Unfortunately, unless you were able to print it out in color, and some of you could, it was sent to you in color. The copy I have is black and white. But this shows you a helpful map with color distinctions of where they go. If you look at this chart, which is more, which is more of a chart, it gives you the basic reference in Genesis ten, how many sons are mentioned, and basically in terms of our geography in 2016, where they go. You follow me? You either follow me or you don't follow me. Do you follow me? Okay. So I'm just all I want you this. I'm not gonna read all this. I'm not gonna read this whole chapter to you. But all I want you to see is the Bible is very, very specific. And because of place names associated with each one of these descendants of Ham, of Shem, and Japheth, we have pretty high level of certainty where they go. And that's why, it, unless, you know, but if you come from a family line that is Europe or parts of Eurasia, you are a descendant of Japheth. I know I am, because my parents are from Germany. Uh, my descendants are from Germany. But if, you, if you're from, you know, Middle Eastern uh, region in terms of your descendants going back or whatever, you would be a descendant of Shem. Jews are not the only descendants of Shem. There are many others, but of course it becomes Semitic and anti-Semitic becomes in, in the modern world uniquely identified with being anti-Jewish. But I do want to concentrate on verse 6. I do want to give emphasis and concentrate and talk about the descendants of Canaan, uh, of Ham and Canaanite. This is really quite important, again, because of what this will mean for the rest of the Old Testament. Because the focus of the Old Testament is going to be on the descendants of Shem, particularly the Hebrews, which come from Abraham, and the Canaanites. Now look at verse 6. The sons of Ham... Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. There are the they are the proper names of his sons. Goodness. Twenty-five over it. I'll never get through all this. Well, don't slow down, Ekman. It doesn't matter. You don't have any goals. Okay. Now Cush Cush will become what is Ethiopia? And those areas south of Egypt. You know where Egypt is. That's a son, but that becomes a place name. And put is a proper name that will become associated with North Africa to the west of Egypt, which would be today like Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, that. Okay? So I mean we can identify this. We know what these different sons of Canaan. Uh, sorry, sons of Ham, where they go. Now, verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. Now, Nimrod, that becomes really important because he is associated with Babel. Uh Babel, B-A-B-E-L. Notice, I'll just read this. Tush fathered Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erak, Akkad, Kalna in the land of Shinar. Shinar is Mesopotamia, the Tigris and Euphrates river valley. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Have you ever heard of Nineveh? That's modern day Mosul. That I'm sure you've heard of, the the Iraqi government would like to take Mosul from ISIS. That's their plan. By the end of this year, they'd like to take Mosul back. Mosul is modern-day Nineveh. Now, that becomes really, because this links us to something. Because Babel will be the tower we're going to read about in chapter 11, and Babel is the beginning of Babylon. And you certainly have heard of Babylon. That is a major symbolic term in the the Bible, but it also becomes a very powerful, it will be the superpower of the ancient world for a period of time under Nebuchadnezzar. So, I mean, you're starting to see the linkage here becomes really important. This material from verse 6 through verse 14 is very, very important for understanding what's about to unfold in the Old Testament. And then verse 15, these names... When you start studying the rest of the Old Testament, these names are all over the place. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinaites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, the Hamathites, afterward the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. They will be the ite people that will inhabit the promised land that Joshua will drive out in the conquest. So you're reading this, now you understand. That's where they came from. They are the descendants of Canaan, who is a descendant of Ham, who is the son of Noah. Now you start to see these connections. And then Shem, I want you to notice, the father of all the children of Eber. In Hebrew, Eber is going to lead to Hebrew, which will be associated with Abraham. Because Abraham will be the father of the Eber people, the Hebrew people, who, when Jacob wrestles with God in Genesis 32, his name is changed to Israel. So from there on out, they will be called the children of Israel. Pardon me. Yes, and you'll, none of you will pass it because I'm going too fast. But I just, huh? Who
1: becomes Israel?
0: Um. When Jacob wrestles with God in Genesis 32, his name is changed to Israel. So that's when they become known as the descendants of become known now as the children of Israel. You knew all that, didn't you? Because before Genesis 32, they're not called the children of Israel. They're called the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But after Genesis 32, they become known as the children of Israel. Israel is the new name of Jacob. You knew that. If you didn't know it, now you know it. And don't forget it. No, but I, I don't mean to confuse you, but you, see, that's why this, this material in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is so important. It helps to explain where all these people and all these names and all these attitudes and all these inclinations come from. And it gives meaning to the rest of the scriptures. Right?
1: <laughs> and Eber was actually
0: Hebrew. Eber know. is the origin of the name Hebrew. Yes, that's where it originates, because Abraham would be the first one called a Hebrew.
1: So I'm a little I'm confused about the map here.
0: You're confused about the map, okay. Yeah. I don't want you to be confused about anything, Jim, and especially the map.
1: I can easily be confused. So if Ham Ham's descendants became the Canaanites... And occupied Canaan. Why are they all in Africa and not over here in what we would call the Middle East? I mean, there are just a few spots along the coastline
0: and so on. So. Well, that that's correct. They they will just inhabit that coastline area.
1: And that's where the Philistines were.
0: And the, but the Philistines
1: they're not the, same the
0: Philistines. Well. No, the Philistines <laughs> come from Crete in 1177 BC. Oh, okay, that's
1: right. I remember that. Now.
0: So I mean, now I, 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 you are I, I, have gone so fast through this. I'm sure I have confused a lot of you. Well, I don't. Where
1: mean... on the map? Where is Canaan?
0: Canaan? Well, Canaan is, Canaan is essentially this right here. Oh, okay. That's it's Israel right there. Where that box is, that's basically the green. That's Canaan. Oh, okay. Right. That will become. I mean, we're going to get to this uh, when we get through Genesis. 11, our next chapter is Genesis 12 where now we're focusing on one person Abraham and God says to him, Abraham get out of Shinar or the Chaldees, that's where Shinar is get, get out of the, war of the Chaldees and I'm going to go I'm going to send you, I'm going to take you, I'm going to lead you to a land I'm going to give you where is it Lord, I'm not going to tell you how long is it, I'm not going to tell you just go, and he goes amazing, and he explains to him It's where the Canaanites live. I'm going to give you all that land. He starts walking through Canaan. He walks down the mountains of Jordan. He goes up and down. It's amazing. God says, I'm going to give you all this. Does Abraham die? (coughs) When Abraham dies, do he and his people have that land? No. When did they get that land? Abraham lives in 2000. They don't get the land until 1399 B.C. So it's 6 Hundred years later God fulfills the promise he made to Abraham and he explains to Abraham why he's not going to give it to him right away because my wrath is not yet filled up against the Canaanites but in 600 years it will be and I and we from archaeology and I mean we have dozens, hundreds and hundreds of texts we have we have found it's unbelievable. This was one of the most grossly immoral civilizations in the history of the human race. You talk about debauchery, the, the Canaanites were it was absolutely horrific what they did. And so God will, and this is how God puts it, when He gives it in instructions to Joshua. You will be, meaning the Israelites. You will be my instrument of judgment. I will judge them through you, and that becomes very harsh because the instructions are basically wipe them out. Yeah. Now show my ignorance. Is this where we get into Sodom and Gomorrah? Is
1: that?
0: Well, no, Sodom and go- no, but we'll soon be there in, in chapter 19. Uh, but in a way, yes, because the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are, um, they are Canaanites. Mm-hmm. They are Canaanites. Later well, earlier. I mean, that's in the time of, that's in the time of Abraham. Because, <laughs> you know, he's, they go down to rescue Lot, and Lot goes down and chooses to go there and sets up his home there and you know what happened. All right, now some of your body language, you're closing your notebooks. I still have another minute and a half. Don't you want that minute and a half? Or should we just, okay? I mean, all right, let me at least introduce, okay? And we won't get into it. But chapter 11 is what is usually called the Tower of Babel. And we really, when we discuss it, if you have a chance, and I know you're all busy, but if you have a chance, read that chapter. But read it Read it from the perspective of what God says about it, especially when you read verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 7. This is what God says about it. What is wrong with building a tower? I mean, what's wrong with that? Why is that an ethical and moral issue to God? You have to remember what God's command was. Fill the earth. Are they filling the earth? No. They're staying in the plane of Shinar. They don't want to go anywhere else. And so, just if you if you read it, read it from that because ten and eleven must go together. And in some ways, chronologic eleven precedes ten. But it's what's going on in the plane of Shinar. This the southern part of Mesopotamia. Today, it would be basically where modern-day Kuwait is. What is. Why is God so upset that they're building a tower? And then, think as you read it, why does God confuse their languages where they can no longer communicate with one another? Why does he do that? And then, if you're really, really thinking, I want you to jump ahead to Acts 2 when Pentecost. Where every human being is hearing the gospel in their own language. <coughs> what does Pentecost undo? So that's where we're going for next week. And then when we're done with chapter 11, we'll start getting into the major narratives of the rest of the uh, book of Genesis, which is Abraham, where God chooses a man and his descendants through which He will bring the redemption, of, or will offer the redemption of the human race. So, I hope this has been valuable. We have one more basic chapter to do in this introductory stuff. So, if you aren't interested, don't come back. But if you're interested, come back. So, we'll deal with chapter 11 next week. Heavenly Father, these are important chapters. They are um, hard, especially chapter 10. I zip through that. But they're important because these are not just made-up names. This is history. This explains to us the dispersion. Of the children and grandchildren, and great grandchildren, etc., of Noah as they populate the earth, where they go. And it helps us to understand some things that unfold as we go through the rest of the Old Testament and really for the rest of world history. But more importantly, we see something that we learned when we looked at this material in chapter 9 God recreates everything, restores the productivity and lush beauty of the earth after the flood, and you still have the same old problem. Noah takes something that's good and prostitutes it into something as an instrument of evil. And that nakedness theme is, again, the problem isn't surroundings. The problem is the human heart. And God's got to change that. And, of course, that ultimately is what Jesus is all about. So we just see, again, the importance of studying these passages carefully, thinking carefully about them, and fitting them into the rest of the Scriptures. Be with these men. I'm thankful they're willing to come and study passages like this in depth because it really does help them to build the kind of worldview and understanding of Scripture that these chapters give. Bless them richly. Give them a good rest of this day. Watch over them. May they be good representatives of you, both in what they say and what they do, in your Son's precious name. Amen. See you next week. Thank you,